This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the one person posting disgusting photos of San Francisco on Instagram, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Richard Walker, a professor emeritus at UC Berkeley who studies human, economic, and urban geography, as well as the history of California. He's the author of several books, and his most recent one is called Pictures of a Gone City, Tech and the Dark Side of Prosperity in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's a very important topic for people who live here, and it's uh, really gotten quite problematic for those who live here. Welcome to Recode Decode, Richard. Thank you very much, Gar. It's uh, good to be here. Good. Uh, we both have colds, so we're gonna we sound very like husky and everything else. That's and right. Coffee. Makes me, coffee. It makes me sound better. Yeah, actually. absolutely. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your background. I want to get into the books because the issues around San Francisco have never uh, been worse. I think I've lived here for 10, 15, maybe twenty years actually, uh, and it's the change has been really dramatic in terms of. Uh, this beautiful, beautiful city um, has changed really for the worse, I think, for most people. And I want to get to the heart of what that means. But why don't you give me some hi- history of you? What, did, what have you? How did you get to doing uh, studying urban geography? Uh, well, that's a long story. I started in economics, and uh, I couldn't stand orthodox economics. So then I went over back into geography as a sort of environmental geographer, but along the way became an urbanist as well. And what does that mean? What does an urbanist do? Well, an urbanist studies cities and how they work. So mm-hmm. I did a lot of work on economic geography. So why, why, for instance, some an industry like tech is so concentrated in certain places, mm-hmm. why certain places specialize, how they grow, how they decline, and so on. It also studies things like uh, housing and its relationship to employment, boom and bust and urban growth, mm-hmm. and uh, urban effects, city effects on the environment, things like that. So it's and, a wide range of things. And you were studying at Berkeley? Is that where you've been teaching this idea? The, the goal being Yeah, to... I, I grew up in the Bay Area, actually, mm-hmm. but I went away for graduate school and came back to teach in the geography department in Berkeley. And, you know, again, I kind of backed into geography because geography is not a field that's well-known in America. It's very popular in Britain or Canada, but not here. Yeah. So it's a lot of us who get into it sort of stumble into it. But it turned out to be a wonderful home where you were free to study a lot of interesting things, say a lot of interesting and maybe controversial things. And um, so I was there at uh, Berkeley for 
almost 40 years. All right. So you specialize. Your previous books, can you go, you, you focus on the history of California or? or I do. I have for about 30 years. Right. At least I've done g- general economic geography, but a lot of my work is on California. I've done history of California agribusiness over 150 years. Mm-hmm. I've done an atlas, a social atlas of California. I've done work on um, on the environmental movement and how central it is here, how central our environmental movement is to the world. And I've done a lot of work on the Bay Area. I led field classes for years, taught classes for years. So I know the Bay Area pretty well. And I've been meaning, I've written a lot of historical essays, I've been meaning to do a book on the Bay Area. And then when this last tech boom hit in the 2010s, I thought I should do a book about Finally, now. Finally, because it's, se- it's been in a series of hits, you know, in terms of growth of, of well, the tech. It started yeah, that's absolutely early. something to remember is that tech, there have been many tech booms going back a century, actually, and uh, many urban booms in the Bay Area going back a century and a half. Right. And we have to see urban growth that way because it can be extremely fast, extremely unnerving, extremely transformative within even a decade, as we've seen, because uh, that's the way capitalism works. Absolutely, very just, rapid growth. Yeah, and 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 change and changes and effects. And I just had Shoshana Zuboff from who written Surveillance Capitalism talking about what uh-huh. what the impact of that and the changes and how we look at capitalism are. I think she's called capitalism a chicken, and it can have take any taste depending on the kind of capitalism you. Well, there is, there is that. But the one thing that is absolutely constant is the ups and downs, the sort of boom and bust. And whenever we're in a boom, we forget about the bust. Absolutely. And we just had a, you know an enormous one in which California was central in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. And then we get this, this amazing boom. And this was one of the greatest in the history of the Bay Area maybe the greatest, and we're all surprised that this happens. Right, right. Well, you know, what's interesting is that obviously everybody knows the gold rush boom. That was the first, I yeah. guess, biggest. But it's not the only one. Absolutely. Yeah. But that's how people think of it. California is this gold, especially San Francisco is this gold rush city. That's right. And, and you know, we, we tend to think that mining booms, you know, produce these uh, mining towns like Virginia City that come and go. What we don't understand so well is that even a major city, a huge metropolis, can be hit by that kind of a gold rush boom, a silicon rush in this case, which is equally amazing in terms of the number of people it brings in, the transformation of the landscape, and also sometimes how fast it goes away. Like in the 1990s when we had the dot-com boom and it collapsed and literally hundreds of thousands of people moved out. Uh Their companies collapsed. Their stock values collapsed by 90%, many of them. Yeah. And the Bay Area was devastated. Absolutely. So let's go through a few of the of the tech booms. Let's go. I mean, obviously, the 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 one people know about, as I said, was the gold rush. But talk about, and that was a tech boom in a lot of ways. If you think about it, mining is technology. Oh, absolutely. And and the Bay Area uh, revolutionized mining. Right. Mining had not been industrialized until the California Gold Rush, and a lot of the equipment and the mining, the technology of the engineering and right. so on, was developed here. And, Sutro, you know, didn't he have like a, quite a... Uh, uh, Sutro was one of the guys. Yeah, he, one of them. With his tunnel and the Comstock load. Right. But people forget a lot of the more humble stuff, you know, Union Ironworks and uh, Handy Ironworks and, Handy Ironworks and others making the machinery yeah. to uh, dig, to grind, uh, to process and so on, the, the 
the ore coming out of those mines. Which was the first in- industrials, meaning doing it instead of individuals doing this kind of mine. Yes, absolutely. And by, yeah. you know, in the, er, in the original gold rush, you had about five years of panning. But after that, it's all deep mining. Right. Gold, silver, whatever, mercury. And you need, it's an industrial endeavor with industrial machinery, industrial capital, and uh, big industrialists who dominate it. In this, in that era, yeah. and and obviously, and, and even silly things like Levi Strauss, which made that's a, to me that's technology. I think that I look at like the pants and how people, what people wear and what oh, they. Yeah, obviously. I mean, I think uh, we use this word technology to describe the latest and greatest. So right now it's digital technology, computers and smartphones. But actually, what happens is. Technology, the technical base of industry and capitalism has been revolutionized again and again and again, going back at least 200 years. And that's a systematic process of which this is just the latest phase. And so, yeah, railroads were were high-tech in their day. Machining was high-tech in its day. Right. The and, automobile and so on and, and so, so forth. On. So the next boom really did come with the with the silicon boom in Silicon Valley, the the original HP and the before. Well, that. I mean, we had uh, quite a boom in tech in the fifties, again in the seventies, and again in the eighties and nineties. Pretty much every decade. So you can get you describe one. each of those just briefly, so then we get up to where we are now? Well, okay. In the early twentieth century, it was tubes, <laughs> and the guy who invented the tube. Uh, perfected the vacuum tube, was Lee DeForest, and he moves to Palo Alto in 1908. He's hired by Federal Telegraph. And there's quite an important boom in radio technology then, which then gets picked up and by um, for ship-to-shore transmission by the Navy and for commercial radio. People don't know that uh, San Jose actually had the first commercial radio station uh-huh. in the country. I did not know that. Yeah, everybody thinks it's in the East Coast sure. or somewhere else. And then... Uh, in the 20s, they could mass-produce tubes, and that's when you get the mass radio boom, the one that, you know, created the FCC. Eventually, the New Deal responds with the FCC. You know, Roosevelt is our first radio president. Then in the uh, late 30s and through World War II, it was these giant specialized tubes for the war, for warfare, radar and sonar. That's how Hewlett-Packard made their money originally. Then in the 50s, you get... Um, you get the silicon chip, and that leads a new kind of digital miniaturized electronics. And then you get the integrated circuit uh-huh. in the 60s. Intel. And, and but from Intel and so on. I mean, I don't know if I'm boring you. No, at not this at point, all. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's one after another. The economy goes down in the early 70s, mid 70s, and then it comes back again with this massive profusion of these specialized chips. Uh, which make it possible to make small computers, finally, the personal computer in the 80s, uh, local area networks, uh, distributed networks, which Sorry. have chips that, you know, communicate along the, along the well, at that time, like uh, tele- telephonic lines, but now, of course, uh, it's, all, it's all laser lines and, and glad but optical it was all fiber in the same, technology. You know, getting back to geography, it was all in the same geography around Palo Alto, around, uh, around Berkeley, around different universities. Most, mostly in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh, people don't know that, you know, Fleet of Forest was in Palo Alto. The Litton brothers were in San Carlos. There were some other things like the, uh, the loudspeaker was invented in Napa, uh-huh. of all places. I didn't know. And the TV... 
what's his name, invented the TV or co-invented it in San Francisco. So it was a little more diffused then because it wasn't a fundamental technology. But as time went on, it concentrated more was and more Was there anything the about this geography that would attract people? I mean, obviously, there's the cultural issues during the early computer, uh, you know, all, the, all the, the way people were changing their lifestyles and things like that. But was there anything about California or this area of California that mattered? Well, there's two things when you got these big concentrations of an industrial, specialized industrial district. And economic geographers, geographical economists have done plenty of work on this to show that the more firms you amass, more labor, bigger labor pool, the more specializations, the way they feed into each other becomes, the the total becomes more than the sum of the parts. Mm -hmm. You get what are called external economies of agglomeration. And once this gets going, it's a virtuous spiral that's very hard to stop or break up. And Silicon Valley got a very early start and has outrun every other place. Because there's the university, there's the VCs, there's the people, the talent. Oh, yeah. You've got the specialists, like even lawyers, VCs, marketers, uh, the producers of the uh, silicon, the producers of the machinery to etch the silicon chips, and so on. And so now, of course, it's all apps and all the interaction there. So it changes over time, but it's the same principle about interaction. Now, the other thing you're trying to get at, which I think is really important, and the economic geographers often miss entirely, is the social context of this. I mean, they understand that once you build an agglomeration like this, there is a social order that goes with it. That is, people understand the industry, they are sympathetic to the industry, they're knowledgeable in the industry, you have politicians and government people and other sectors and organizations who are supportive of the industry, and all that counts. But the one thing that's often missed is the sort of social order of California, which is very open, very kind of, you know, we like to say laid back and so on. And that actually counts. And there's some very good work done on the post-World War II part of this story about how uh, the sort of counterculture combined with the cyber culture of of um, yes, it was very post- it was a critical. Yeah, joining. post-war Cold War came together. This is Fred Turner's wonderful book. Uh, Annalise Saxinian talking about why Silicon Valley outpaced uh, Boston and Route 128. Uh, she wrote in the 90s and how it had to do with this much more open. Environment, social environment, live and let live. sharing, live and let live. You can fail and come back. Whereas uh, Boston was much more corporate, a little more uptight. Right. Got the ties and colder? the suits and so on. Physically, physically colder. No, no. I, mean, I don't think I mean, that has anything. You don't to think do weather it. has anything to do with it? Weather has Actual geography. Weather has nothing to do with it. Otherwise, Boston would never have developed. <laughs> uh, so you, so you come up now to the internet age. That developed through this. It was a bust, and then it, 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 that was the new push. The early, the first internet phase one, and then phase two. Well, by the eighties, you're always ta- already talking about local area networks. This right. idea of networking. And Apple had started with the graphical user interface, Microsoft Windows ninety four. That's it right. Led up to what? For, for That's the right. And part. and then you know uh, Berners Lee comes up with the idea of the World Wide Web, but they're already using an internet, and right. it's supported by the Defense Department, uh-huh. as people now should know. And uh, but here we had more of the firms playing with this, more of the little computers, more of the switch makers, and so on, and the more wiring. 
So this was the most densely internet-wired place on Earth by the 90s. And then it also had this culture, and the whole culture developed around the use of this, a kind of utopian view developed at the well, through Craigslist, through other kinds of early um, kind of media and practice. Yeah, for those who don't know, the well was a was a gathering place, an online gathering place. Yeah, exactly. And then there were the media, you know, right. like Red Herring and so on that were— pushing the sort of ideology of the Internet. And they were right in one sense. This was going to revolutionize the world. Absolutely. They were about 10, 20 years ahead of time. Yeah, but. absolutely. That's when I got here. So so then it moved into the to the bust and then another uh, another boom, starting mm-hmm. with the iPhone. I think people around the iPhone or that period of yeah, time. Yeah, that's right. Where the mobile revolution really kicked yeah, in. Yeah, I think the smartphones, the smartphones were really— But, you know, the iPod, when do they come out with that? Maybe 2001 or two. Yeah. It's very early. Because a lot of the technology that went into smartphones was already, already being here. played with in the 80s Apple and 90s, but they couldn't quite do it. It wasn't quite General small. General magic. You know, remember the chips are getting smaller and smaller, right. so you could finally do it. Yeah. And then Apple, of course, a certain brilliance of Steve Jobs' image or ability to imagine what it should look like and right. how it would work. So, uh, fast forward today, lots of companies then suddenly appear, Uber, yeah. Airbnb, Facebook, all Google, which was nine. People don't realize how late Google got to the game here. It was 99 when it started, when it really mm-hmm. began. Yeah, I think 97 officially, but, but yeah, it doesn't but matter. Really, it didn't, it didn't get going yeah, for really quite a while. Yeah, it really takes off in the 2000s. In the 2000s. That's right. So, it, to paint the picture, and then I'm going to talk about the book that you've written. Uh, so, then, then it's a really go-go period. It's a crazy go-go period. After, it was a crazy go-go period. There was a little bit of a slowdown, and then— it took off again. Yeah, I think uh, both people here in the world weren't paying that much attention in the 2000s because the big news then was the financial bubble and the housing bubble, which, by the way, was actually uh, centered on a, for, in the world on California. People don't know that. And then the huge collapse, the Great Recession. But this economy pulled out of the Great Recession faster than any place in the United States and probably anywhere in the world. Uh, around 2010, it just shot up, started shooting up because the groundwork had been laid. You had Facebook, you had smartphones, you had Google, and boom. And the great thing about the technology of our time, the positive is a lot of new things can be developed on the basis of these apps. Uh, that is a little bit of software. It goes a long way once you have these platforms. Absolutely, once you have the mobile platforms. So the platforms were there even though we hadn't realized how much they were going to change the world. And in 2010, so that's when it happens. And it literally changes the world. I mean, we live in the world, the tech world that these guys developed, uh, for better or worse. All right. We're going to talk about the worst in a minute. When we get back, we're here with Richard Walker, whose recent book is called Pictures of a Gone City, Tech and the Dark Side of Prosperity in the San Francisco Bay Area. We're going to take a quick break now, but we'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom 
help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian Software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200 or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR and legal, can stay connected and move together as one towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. We're here with Richard Walker. He's a professor emeritus at Berkeley. He studies uh, human economic and urban geography as well as the history of California. His new book is called Pictures of a Gone City, Tech and the Dark Side of Prosperity in the San Francisco Bay Area. All right. As the 2010s went, everything looked great. Everything looked great. Yeah, it takes off and looks like the brave new world and where you've revolutionized the communications and everything looks just Ride fine. Ride sharing, everything. Everything. Yeah. And what you know, people get very enthusiastic about everything from Facebook to ride sharing to tweeting to whatever. Yeah. And it takes a while, as these things always do, for society to wake up to the downside And I think in the Bay Area, we may have realized it sooner Mm -hmm. because we're more tech-savvy, but also we have to live with it. So on the one hand, you you realize that all these little startups that are so exciting have turned into giant corporate uh, bulldogs, you know, that that are no different than the old uh, big three car makers or the big railroad companies in the 19th century. You're going— Wow, that's not exactly what I imagined. Then you start discovering, you know, you get the tweeter-in-chief and the misuse of these technologies uh, for harassment, bullying. It's kind of mad. You know, openness seems great until, you know, you get people massively harassed because of something they say and everybody descends on Twitter or a Facebook to attack them, um, you think that you're looking out at the world and getting all this information through Google, and then you realize it's actually looking back at you, and they're taking all the information about you and sharing it and spreading it and giving it to the NSA and so on. So all of a sudden, you have a series of really big problems in the tech world itself. Then in addition, what people in the Bay Area understand is the enrichment and the rapid boom have created this unbelievable urban upheaval, which is a combination of massive building, a massive displacement, uh, new people showing up, and the whole landscape of the city changes. But the worst, of course, is the housing crisis. Right. So talk about that. First people were here, and then they left during the first bust. Yeah, Hundreds of, of thousands. How many came back in? Well, probably almost a half a million have come in in this boom. 
So that's a lot of people. Yeah. Some of them bring families. They're not all young techies. Yeah. Uh, because when there's a boom like this, the opportunity, people migrate. Most migration uh, is for jobs. Right. You know, it's not to try and uh, to get welfare payments or something. It's for jobs. And so when the Bay Area booms, people come surging in. So we've had a huge surge of people. But more than that, a huge surge of money. The companies are making massive amounts of money. Uh, there's a lot of outside capital pouring in. So you have more money than you—I mean, money's literally burning holes in the pockets. Yeah, I always say there's not enough rat holes to shove it down, but go ahead. That's exactly right. And the upper classes are very well paid. The top 10, 20 percent are extremely well paid. They bid for housing. They— a lot of them want to be near tech. They want to be near finance or business services, which are concentrated from San Francisco down to Silicon Valley. And so the West Bay is, uh, gets the worst of this. But the whole Bay Area just has this massive surge of demand for housing. And it can't keep up. And we can't possibly build stuff fast enough for that. So housing prices shoot up. And we every- also have a, a, have a political culture that doesn't want to build, too. There's, there's that. There's, well, we'll get back to that. Yeah, okay. If so, you want so to talk about there's not solutions. enough housing to start with. There's not enough housing, but there can't be. Right. In a very rapid boom, and this is well known from studies of housing booms elsewhere and over history, is that when it takes off, it ta- there's a real time lag before building can, ta- can resume. The other issues around San Francisco are, are that there's not much space. There isn't. It's unlike other areas that can splay out, essentially. There's only so much st- San Francisco is like a mitten. Like, that's it. Well, that's true and false. So okay, tell me. It's what. true, narrow sense. You've got to remember that the Bay Area also sprawls out. Yeah. So the Bay Area as a whole, the metropolitan area, which yeah. is now eight and a half I million, mean, close people, 12 counties, goes 100 miles in three directions, not into the ocean, obviously. And people are commuting from Far away. out in the Central Valley, down in Hollister, all the way up in Lake County. It's unbelievable. And the result, you know, because they've been displaced from the center. So there's housing being built at the edge. There's housing being built in the middle. It's being built all around. But it's very hard to do it fast enough because housing's a very strange product. It's not—you can't just up the production of housing the way you can of juice bars right. or, uh, or, you know, eyeglasses or something small like that. It takes a lot of time. You have this spatial problem of how do you find, you have to find plots, buy up the plots, then you have to get the zoning permission, make sure you've got all that, then you have to get your architects, then you have to get your tenants, then you have to get your contractors, and they're all, in a boom, they're all busy. So they get more expensive, and the whole thing, you know, it's, there's really a bottleneck effect right. in a boom that makes it hard to build quickly enough and cheaply enough to build housing for everyone. And then the people with less money get shoved further and further out, including police. That's exactly right. I mean, it's the working people, the bottom 75, 80 percent, which is basically the working classes, uh, get shoved out um, because they can't pay the high rents in the middle. And there's a lot of dissatisfaction with that. There's literally hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced from the West, the West Bay. And that's because, uh, partly because of the boom, but it's partly because of inequality. You have incredible enrichment at the top. Uh, those people have the money to bid for housing. And when, even when developers build housing, and they are building a lot of apartments these days, uh, those go to the top 20% because developers 
are in it for the profit. Sure. So they're going to build, and there's plenty of demand at the top. So just to satisfy that demand. And the only time we got, uh, for example, mass building of, of low-income housing or working-class housing uh, in the 1950s when we had a period of very um, dramatic equality because of the impact of the uh, Great Depression, which wiped out a lot of the wealth of the rich, and then high taxes because of the New Deal, and then uh, labor organizing helped to buy the New Deal's labor laws. So suddenly the top and the bottom moved closer together. And surprise, surprise, you had mass building for your av- little houses for your average blokes, your average folks. So today, where are we in the And then let's get to the political part of it because then there's the entire political scene, which is there's yimbies, nimbies, everybody. Yeah. Well, of course, in a period of very rapid change, you're going to expect a lot of people get up on their hind legs and say, wait, my neighborhood has been totally transformed. I'm losing my housing. My friends have been pushed out. And they oppose new developments because what else can they do? They don't have the power of taxation. That's the Republican Congress that gave away $2 trillion to the rich in the latest round of tax cuts. They've done that now four times, going back to Reagan. So helping the people at the top get richer, equality grow, inequality grow. So what are people at the local level going to do? One of the things that one of the few powers they have is to oppose new developments because they know when you get a new development, it's going to go almost surely to the top 20%, and it's going to change the neighborhood. As all geographers know, urban geographers, neighborhood effects are fundamental. Uh, what goes on in one side of your neighborhood or, in, you know, where there's going to be a fairly wide area and in your little town, in these small suburban towns like Cupertino or Orinda or Walnut Creek, will affect everything there. And these places have precisely been carved up to secure protected environments protected communities for the well-to-do in most cases, and then the rest is left to the worker, working people. Now, there are real problems of exclusive neighborhoods, exclusive towns like Palo Alto and Orinda uh, and Atherton who protect a very low-rise environment and do not want any new development, certainly not lower-class uh, apartments. Uh, we don't hear too much about those generally um, because we take for granted that the rich are going to do that and they have a lot of political clout. What's surprising to people is, okay, you're going to make transit development or in the Mission District or in uh, MacArthur Station in Oakland, and people suddenly are very upset because it's going to transform their neighborhood. Then we hear everything about it. Oh, my God, how can they oppose us? We need more housing, so on, so on. So there is that. But by and large, the main problem, I will reiterate, is on the demand side, not on the supply side. And yet conventional wisdom has it all being a shortage of supply due to opposition by NIMBYs. Mm-hmm. And that's just, not, that's just not true. 
You've got to look at both sides of the equation. I mean, it's simple economics, and yet the economists constantly come out and say, well, you just build more, and that's so simple. They don't understand housing. They don't understand neighborhood effects. They don't understand communities and jurisdictions and the whole politics of the urban field, which makes that very difficult under all circumstances and even worse when you've got a huge boom. All right, so you've got this huge boom, and at the same time you have enormous spikes in crime, homelessness, Drugs in San Francisco, the streetscape in San Francisco has changed dramatically in the last three years. I, I have to say it's really it's sort of a shocking for most people. Uh, I see people on Twitter all the time. I'm leaving San Francisco. I'm leaving. This is impossible. And you create these offices of these Internet companies that are beautiful in the sky while on the streetscape is really quite dire. So how does that happen? Well, uh, the homelessness has to do with a number of causes, and I'm not an expert on homelessness, so I'm not going to go there. But I will say that the housing crisis has squeezed, has squeezed more people out on the streets or living in their cars. There's a lot of them living in their cars who are even employed in regular jobs in Silicon Valley. And the burbs, you get more of that because people can kind of escape in their cars. Other, in, in San Francisco, it's often, you know, they're out on the streets. So there is that. And there's also problems of our uh, terrible abandonment of health care and, and care for the uh, mentally disabled and so on and, and our treatment of drugs and so on. So all that goes into that street problem. I will oppose your view that there's a spike in crime because, by and large, crime has been going down. There's a perception of it, though. I just, I'm just saying. I, yeah. I, I, I would say. I, I mean to say more of perception because I think it's because of the filthy streets and the feeling of broken windows everywhere. Yeah. Well, I mean, if the tech companies and all those well-to-do techies would like to pay more taxes, we could have more street cleaners. Right. And we should. I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you. It's a disgrace. Uh, our homeless, treatment of homeless is a disgrace, uh, a, moral, it's a moral pustule on American society and a local society. Although the city of San Francisco is trying, it's done a lot. Um, it's spent a lot of money on homelessness, and it's a really hard issue. It's not a simple thing. No, not at all. And uh, people sometimes treat it as simple, but mostly you need more money. And uh, that would do a lot. And now we have Prop C, and that's going to help. Uh, but we need even more. We, we, you know, you have to remember that for 50 years we've abandoned money for public housing at the federal public and state everything. levels. Public everything. Public everything, exactly. Transport. You know, when I was—I'll just—I have to say this. When I was a kid growing up in the 1950s and 60s, there was no such thing as homelessness. My parents would talk about— hobos and bums right. of the 1920s and 30s, especially in the Depression. You had all these guys riding the rails and so on because of mass unemployment. Well, what do we have now? It all came back with the neoliberals and the cuts in public, um, public spending, public programs, um, the loss of low-income housing as we squeezed them out and had an earthquake or two that didn't help. And then we go, oh, gosh, we have all these homeless people. Well, you know, it doesn't have to be that way because it wasn't that way at a certain right. point. Right, right. So let's talk about, before we get to the next section, about solutions. When you say, you say uh, pictures of a gone city, tech and the dark side of prosperity, what do you mean by gone? Oh, it's taken from a poem by Lawrence Ferlinghetti, yeah. back written in 1951, that I just love. I've always loved and I always wanted to use that name. Um, what do you mean by gone? 
Well, gone is obviously a uh, slang for a city that's disappearing. But it's also gone in the 50s, also slang. Oh, that's a really gone tune, man. So uh, it could be both good and bad. And I think what I'm trying to capture in this book is the good and the bad. And I often sound kind of like a siren of negativity here, but people want to hear the reasons for a lot of the problems they're experiencing because they look around them and they go, what the heck is going on here? And I try to explain that in a logical, rational, empirical, uh, defended way and so on. At the same time, one of the purposes of the book was to tell people in the Bay Area and people beyond how important this place is. A lot of people here don't realize. You know, they don't realize how big it is. If they live in San Francisco, they oh, Silicon Valley, that's sort of halfway to Los Angeles, isn't it? <laughs> and the Central Valley, nobody here thinks about that at all. And yet it's part of the Bay Area as a whole. You know, this is the fourth biggest city in the country. It is the richest city per capita in the world. Um, this is unbelievable measure of success. We grew in this boom by about 50% in GDP. I mean, that's astonishing. It's an astonishing thing. You know, thing. people go on, oh, China, you know, the growth. No, we're the China of the 2010s, the Beijing of the 2010s. No wonder it looks like we're being turned topsy-turvy. So people need to appreciate how important, how successful, how wealthy this place is, and at the same time, what problems, rapid growth and wealth and inequality. All and right, so let's talk about solutions in the next section. We're here. We're going to take another break now. We'll be back with Richard Walker. He's a professor emeritus at UC Berkeley. His most recent book is called Pictures of a Gone City, Tech and the Dark Side of Prosperity in the San Francisco Bay Area. We're here with Richard Walker. He's a professor emeritus at Berkeley, UC Berkeley. His most recent book is called Pictures of a Gone City, Tech and the Dark Side of Prosperity in the San Francisco Bay Area. We talked a lot about the problems of, and you talk about wanting to be positive, leaning. Talk about solutions of, and where we're going. Obviously, one one way this would all change was there's a bus. There's another bus, which is inevitable, I suppose, as you said, ups and downs. What happened in that case? And then what do we do about about fixing these problems from homelessness to housing to other things and creating an urban geography? Because San Francisco is the most beautiful city, like one of the most beautiful cities in the world. But it doesn't feel like that anymore. Okay. Well, you've asked a lot yeah, there. Okay. Well, there. Uh, I don't think I can solve all those problems. Well, Richard, For, we'll you're going to have to. We'll start with the fact that it's inevitable that there'll be a recession. Um, it was actually going to come— in 2017 and 18, about when Trump was elected and the Republicans had their majorities, they passed this huge tax cut. Yeah. That is a classic Keynesian tactic, which Republicans always denounce uh -huh. if Democrats try to do it. Oh, you can't do stimulus. Right. But they did a massive stimulus. The, the economy surged, especially stock prices and the profits went going into the banks for the big corporations. But that's passed, and that, that blip is passed, and now the economy is sagging. The stock market had a very serious troubles in late in the, in the year, 2018. And I think we're going to see it. You know, whenever you see um, the job figures peaking, job growth peaking, and the stock market starting to sag, you know you're heading into a recession. So... That's going to happen. Now, what's, how bad it's going to be is an, another question. It's not going to be like the Great Recession. The financial games are not as severe this time. However, we never know 
how much financial finagling there's been until after it collapses and how much it is attached to us. You know, in the 1990s, the the dot-com bubble, we were responsible for about 40% of the stock market bubble of the 90s. And when that went away, we suffered a very severe local recession in the Bay Area. Uh, Same thing when uh, the housing boom went away in 2007-8. California was just hit, especially our interior areas. So we'll have to see, but it isn't going to be pretty. Let's put it that way. It's never pretty when it goes down after a boom of this magnitude. And what about solving all these areas? Of pe- but then you will see another growth spurt because it all, this is still the center of innovation. But how does that end? How do How do cities become less innovative? Is it because they get too rich or too successful? Or there's all kinds of studies on what causes the innovation cycles to end? Yeah, it, there's no easy answer. There's no agreed-upon answer to that. Undoubtedly, success breeds its own failures eventually. That's a good way of putting The it. corporations get too fat. We saw that with American... You know, the United States dominated the world economy in the post-war era. We had two-thirds of the manufacturing coming out of the Second World War. We had the, the most advanced corporations, most advanced corporate organization, most advanced Fordist production systems, and so on. And what you just people have looked at this by the 1970s and 80s, you see the corporations had simply lost touch with developments of technology elsewhere, like Japanese car manufacturing. And they were so used to being sort of fat and happy that they'd really lost interest in that kind of lean and hungry competition and and, uh, innovation. So we're going to see some of that now with our big companies like Google and Facebook and so on. So far, they've been saved by the fact we have so many startups that what they do is gobble up the startups that will work for them. So that keeps innovation kind of inside. They, they, they absorb it like an amoeba in a way. Yep, yeah. Absorbing mitochondria from other single-celled <laughs> organisms or bacteria or something. But it, could, it I can— I call it the Borg, just so you know. Oh, okay. It can be a terrible problem. But um, one problem, one thing that won't happen, really, is that cost. High costs are produced by the very success of the place. And there's a simple view that high costs will kill the goose, the lace, the golden egg, and that's never true. What is happening is that the place is so successful, and tech, not— that it's spilling over. So Google has huge offices in New York and Austin and so on. Um, They've, of course, already distributed production to East Asia, the booming areas of East Asia. The boom in Shenzhen, China, in Guangdong, had a lot to do with tech companies producing there. So, But the other thing is that the tech sector, what we call tech, that is information technology, is so ubiquitous now that you have huge masses of workers doing kind of uh, infotech around, say, finance and fashion and other things, corporate management in New York, Mm -hmm. huge sectors in L.A., in Austin, in London, and so on. Out of that is likely to come the next great innovation. It's not necessarily going to be us because this thing is so dispersed. And if there's one thing we know, and I wrote about this 30 years ago, about in the industrial technology is it does shift. There will be these epical shifts. Does it have to end? And it doesn't always happen in the places where it's been before. Right. But does it have to end? 
Is it like a car company where suddenly Detroit is not the place? Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The thing about this kind of technology as opposed to cars, you know, with cars you can have trucks and Jeeps and a few other things, you know, uh, maybe um, uh, army vehicles and so on. But with this technology, it is highly varied. So so it connects into a lot of things. So it gives you a certain kind of diversity. In addition, of course, the Bay Area has lots of other things going on. It's got biotech, for example. It's got huge financial and business services sectors, food sectors. So you never quite know what the next thing will be. And the reason big cities, one of the reasons big cities survive better than little towns is they're not as specialized. So we will suffer some losses in the future as tech changes and maybe decentralizes much more than it has now. But so far, we have an incredible record that goes so back So when you say the dark side of prosperity in the San Francisco, what is the darkest part from your perspective? Oh, I think the darkest part is inequality. Um, I think we all know about the rise of inequality. A lot of it, of course, we don't, we didn't know until some French economists taught us how ironic that our economics profession, not only can it not predict the next recession, it has paid no attention to inequality until Emmanuel Science at Berkeley and uh, Paquetti uh-huh. uh, from France uh, started doing these fantastic studies of wealth. So we now all know and we feel and we experience this massive increase in inequality. And I think it's grotesque, and it's a threat to democracy, and it's a threat to the kind of society we all want to live in. I would agree. So that is probably <laughs> the darkest obscene. I call it obscene. I like grotesque better, though. I'm going to okay, thank you. Grotesque. Thank you. Well, I like to believe I'm a wordsmith. <laughs> but the Bay Area, what we don't admit, I think, is that the Bay Area is one, one if not the greatest generator of inequality in the world. That is enrichment at the top. Right. And because our average income is very high, our wages tend to be high, we go, oh, aren't we wonderful? But in fact, we're producing obscene uh, riches at the top that need to be redistributed. We can't let I this go change on. change that attitude because the attitude among those who have that money is like, first of all, I earned it, I made it, which is fair. You know, they got, they were billionaires because this we may, we thought of something. Secondly, there's the go-go build, like move fast, break things. It's okay if we take as much as we can. How do you get through to them. This is, you know, one of the things I said to someone the other day, we've got to like figure out a way to deal with inequality, you know, and pay for it or else you're just going to have to armor plate your your Tesla. Like that's the only, that's what you're going to have the choice. Yeah. And a lot of them think that's what they're going to do. They build bunkers in Idaho and so on. I think a lot of them don't think that. I think a lot of them are like, they don't, when you say that to them, they're like, whoa, like you're just going to end up being like one of those sort of dystopian movies where you live in the clouds and the yeah. poor people live well, Hopefully they're not all as kind of wacko as Elon Musk wanting to go to Mars and so on. But a lot of them are. Yeah. And the others, uh, look, they develop this ideology when they're sort of the outsiders and they're the little guys. And they say, yeah, of course, we're, gonna, we're doing this great stuff. We need to be rewarded. Okay, that's fine when you're a bunch of little guys. When you become the biggest corporate monopolist on earth, the most valuable corporations on earth. You can no longer say that. When you're multi-billionaires, you can't say that. And we, the rich are not going to go away just if you start to tax them fairly. We used to tax, you know, it's all about marginal tax rates. It's not like we're going to take all your money tomorrow. 
But if you don't tax at high marginal rates, you get endless accumulation of capital in the hands of the well-to-do. And smaller amounts of people. And that, and smaller and smaller. And that's what we've seen happen. We have plenty of evidence of that. So, and we also have evidence that when we tax the corporations and the rich at a high average rate from the 30s through the 70s, we got greater equality. The rich were still, it's not like, they're not rich. You know, take somebody like A.P. Giannini, yeah. Bank of America founder. Whether you like him or not, he built the world's biggest bank. He, he lived in a modest home down in Atherton or Hillsboro. I'm sorry. Hillsboro. That never, he was never had massive mountains of money. He gave a little philanthropy to UC to build an agricultural building and so on. Henry Kaiser, probably the most important industrialist on earth uh, around World War II. He was here, headquartered in Oakland. He lived in a ranch house in Lafayette. You know, and he never, there's no huge Kaiser Foundation. It's the medical foundation. That's what he put his wealth into, was service and creating the greatest HMO in America to provide health care for working people. Well, apparently, Giannini and Kaiser, they built these empires. They were very successful. They never suffered. So... Like, what's the problem? And yet they didn't build up this kind of obscene it is wealth. Obscene. Yeah. It's what I was talking to another very wealthy person the other day, and you are being very petty, and I said, you're so poor, all you have is money. Like, you don't even understand. You know, what, what's the solution to getting their attitudes changed? Because, you know, you have Alexander Ocasio mentioning the marginal tax rate, which most people agree with in this country. Absolutely, because most is people are working Which they're trying people. to paint that they don't, calling them communists and socialists course, and everything else. Which is not. How do you get... They're just it's new through. dealers. Yeah. How do you get it to—that's to, that's a good way to put it. Uh, that's why they call it the Green New Deal. Uh, how do you get people here to get it through their heads? Some people do. Like Mark Benioff has been giving a lot of money. A lot of people do chastise other rich people. You, you, don't, you don't do this by persuading the rich to change their ways. Yeah. I'm sorry. The wealthy and the rulers have never given up their power yeah. without a fight. So— what you do is what the old, the old uh, Marxists called class struggle. You can call it whatever you want, but it's political mobilization by the mass of people to say enough's enough. We're going to tax you at a higher rate. We believe that that is what society should do, a good society, and you pose it in ethical terms. And, you know, it's not— you know, you don't. You never come in and say, oh, "I'm just going to come steal your money." Yeah, that's bank robbery. Right. It's about ethics. It's about the interest of the collective, society as a whole, and the good of the mass of people. Whether it's to pay for health, and then you have things you need to do. We need universal health care. It's expensive. We need the money. We need to rebuild our infrastructure. The American. Society of Civil Engineers says we have a backlog of $4.5 trillion of maintenance in America. It's crazy. And you need education. Our public schools are a mess. You know, the teachers are, are striking because we've been nickel and diming and cutting our public schools everywhere for decades now. California, when I was a kid, California was in the top five public school system. We never even thought about, our parents never thought about private schools. Right. We went to public schools. And now, you know, by the end of the neoliberal period, by the early 2000s, we'd fallen to the bottom five in per-pupil spending. You know, down with Mississippi and Arkansas and other really famously progressive places. 
And guess what? When I was a kid, most of the new migrants of California, and there were millions of them, were white. Now, lo and behold, when our schools go to hell and we penny-pinch our schools, who's in them? People of color. And it's a disgrace. So you have to fight this on racial terms. It's, it is about anti-racism. On class terms, we need our unions rebuilt. We need labor uh, with strength to oppose these kind of corporate oligarchs and bring a little more sanity to the workplace. You know, even in tech, they overwork people massively. And they say, oh, but we're giving you all these goodies and you're going to get rich one day and so on. Well, let me tell you, those people produce a lot of extra goodies for the owners of these companies like Twitter and so on. I always say and that. They're really getting free food. <laughs> ultimately, they're the, easily bought. They are easily bought. And the people have to believe that we, the working people, produce everything. And yes, if you come up with a great idea like Bill Gates or Elon Musk or, or Steve Jobs, I'll give you an extra. I'll double your salary. I'll give you triple, but I won't give you $50 billion for it. That's nuts. And the idea that you know, workers are paid fairly, no. If a worker didn't produce more than they're paid, they'd be fired. Right. That's called surplus. And those guys live on these mountains of surplus. They do. All right. On that note, I love this. I love this, Richard. I think you're absolutely right. It's a really interesting time, especially with a lot of people in Congress finally talking about these issues and, and people make, putting it at the front, a lot of the Democratic candidates putting it at the front. Uh, I think it's scary to a lot of people here because they feel like they want they keep calling them communists and socialists. It, it's going to be a very big discussion, I think, going into the next uh, couple of years. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, there was some talk early in the 2000s about how progressive the techies were. Oh, they're not. I don't think so. And what's become clear is the big boys are just another group of big capitalists. That's my feeling And the whole time. even a lot of upper techies are these kind of libertarians. It's, oh, God, we can do it better than government. Yeah. Well, no, you can't. Yeah. We need government for a lot of the things, essentials. Yeah. We need it to build our highways. Yeah, I was we like, how do you it, like those highways you're riding on? Yeah, we need it for water <laughs> supply. Yeah. We need it yeah. for health care. And then you can do the other stuff. I don't need the government to produce my cell phones or my cough drops or my orange juice. That's fine. Market works great for that. But markets don't do we I think everybody understands markets don't work well for healthcare now. They don't. They don't work well for housing either by the way. They work great for the upper 50%, but every wealthy country has a massive public housing program except us. Yep. Yep. What is that about? Yep, yep. You know, Barack Obama talked about this on his way out of office where he said tech doesn't solve all these problems. They're not solvable by technological means. They're, yeah. they just, you just need good government or better government, essentially. That's right. Anyway, Richard, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having and thanks me. for all of you for listening. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please tell a friend about this show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. Richard, where can people find you online? They can find me through UC Berkeley. Okay. Uh, and also at the Living New Deal, which is a project I direct that is uh, documenting all New Deal public works and showing that we could do it again. All right, then. Now that you're done with this, go to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Pivot. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. And thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Saturday. Tune in then. 